Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Prof Talks. This is a podcast dedicated to speaking with professors from around the world about their research in fields of political science, international relations, international development, and much more. I'm Luba, and today I'll be speaking with Catherine Boone, the Professor of Comparative Politics at the London School of Economics and a specialist in property rights, land tenure, and territorial politics in Africa. So I spoke with Catherine in Barcelona. It was during an international conference on development at the Barcelona Institute of International Studies. And I'm telling you this just in case you hear some funny background noise. And I have to admit, I was really excited to speak with Catherine because I too have spent some time working in West Africa and this is a part of the world that continues to fascinate me. So this is a great episode for anyone who's either been to West Africa or any part of Africa because you'll, you'll probably walk away with some new insights. But it's also going to be really helpful for anybody who wants to work or study in Africa because Catherine has some great advice on how you can make that happen. We'll start off the interview by talking about Catherine's background and professional trajectory and then dive into some of her recent work looking at ethnic conflicts. As you listen to our conversation, you'll hear Catherine bring up and refer to the Sons of the Soil conflict. To explain it briefly, and I know this is simplifying it quite a bit, but basically the Sons of the Soil conflicts are land disputes between ethnic minorities who see themselves as the long-standing occupants of a territory and the migrants coming in from different regions of the same country for a number of different reasons. The reason I wanted to speak with Catherine about this particular part of her research is because it takes a very different approach to explaining why ethnic conflicts break out. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's interview. So before we get into discussion about your work on land and property institutions, I want to talk about your background and why you decided to focus your work on research in Sub-Saharan Africa. So in university, you spent time studying in Nairobi. What made you decide to go to Nairobi? Well, I never actually decided to go to Nairobi as such. So I was an undergraduate Mm -hmm. at the University of California studying world politics. Mm -hmm. So I became interested in how the structure of the global economy shapes the change and the character of national economies. And that is a subset of a, of a broader question about kind of national trajectories. Like how does the political economy of countries change over time? So the African cases or African countries are really interesting because of this dramatic experience of late colonialism, where you know European countries basically subjected almost all of Sub-Saharan Africa to European overrule for about 70 years in the 20th century. So it was very late and very recent and very dramatic. And so I took a few courses in development and African politics as an undergraduate and some courses on international political economy. And then I did this study year abroad in Africa. And actually, I was planning to go to Ghana with a university program. And just before we were to leave the university in Accra, Ghana's capital closed for the year because of political disturbances. So the 
University of California asked us if we wanted to go to Nairobi instead. Mm -hmm. So I looked it up on the map, I found out where it was, and I said yes. So that's how I ended up at, at University of Nairobi. But one of the great things about University of Nairobi is that they had, in those days, a really, really excellent um, year-long course on um, African politics and African development. And it was comparative, and uh, it tried to explain similarities and differences in the sort of political systems and economies of different African countries. And so I just became fascinated by this kind of comparative political economy framework. And um, after I did my study year in Nairobi, I traveled around Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, basically East and West African countries quite a lot. And, you know, had this experience of um, really seeing how very different they were. And thinking about which of those differences were due to politics and which were due to, you know, long, long, long historical trends and geography, demography. So, you know, I was really immersed in it and I just became very interested in, in the social science as well as, let's say, the human aspects. And so I did a PhD in political science focused on Africa, but within political science, this would have been nested in the subfield of comparative politics. And African studies occupies a very interesting niche within political science. And so after I got my PhD, I just went into academia and, and continued on this same route. And I studied political economy. My first book was on industry. My second main project was really on the commercial sector and control over commercial circuits within African countries. And then I moved in the last, let's say, 10 years to the, these projects on land. So I gradually became convinced that land was super interesting, but just completely misunderstood, you know, non-understood part of the political structure of African countries. So this has been my trajectory. What are some of the African countries that you worked in? So I... Just chronologically speaking, I spent um, a year and a half in Kenya, and then I traveled around to um, several East and West African countries. And then when I went back to do my PhD research, actually I had originally planned the project for Zimbabwe. And um, the year I was supposed to go to Zimbabwe to do my PhD research, that country also closed to American researchers. And so I ended up in Senegal, so now West Africa. So I worked quite a lot in Senegal, and then after Senegal, I worked quite intensively in Cote d'Ivoire, and then Ghana, and then uh, more recently, I've gone back to Kenya and um, Tanzania. So these would be the countries that I've, I've actually done field research in. In your opinion, and based on your own experience, how important is it for someone who wants to work in West Africa to learn and to speak French? Well, French is the national language mm -hmm. in the Francophone countries. And so if you're going to want to consume government publications or the social science literature or publications by NGOs or international organizations on that country, mm -hmm. you'll have to be able to read French. But it does depend a little bit on the kind of work you want to do. So let's say in Senegal, for example, if you wanted to do ethnographic work within families or work with um, fishermen or 
work with farmers along the border or transporters, I mean, you would definitely need to speak at least one national language. So when I first did my research in Senegal in the 1980s, I think French was used much more than it is now. So even now, uh, like Senegalese nightly news, for example, the same news broadcast on TV that would have been done in French 20 years ago, 25 years ago, is now in Wolof. So I think the premium for knowing that national language is really for all kinds of work probably would certainly would have always been good. Now it's more necessary. But you would certainly need French too. So, of course, French isn't an easy language. How did you learn to speak French? I just studied French in school. So um, when my project in Zimbabwe fell apart, my, my original dissertation project in Zimbabwe fell apart, I had to pick a new country. And so because I had the French, I had a wider range of choices. And that project was on industrial policy. And Senegal was one of the most industrialized countries in West Africa at that time. So it kind of made possible, uh, it, it made it possible for me to go mm -hmm. to Senegal, whereas it would have been impossible before. But if I had been restricted to English, I would have maybe gone to Kenya or Nigeria. But, you know, that would have been a very different, that would have made a very different life mm -hmm. for me, I think. So yeah, very, exactly. very happy that I went to Senegal. It's just always interesting to hear how one decision, for example, like learning French, yeah. had kind of created this path where, where you end up going to, to different countries and researching and focusing on different things because of the language. And, and I don't know if you agree, but I think in, in America and the United States, there's less of a focus on learning foreign languages because English is so widespread. But especially in international development, in um, political science, it makes such a big difference to know a different language because you never know where it might end up taking you. Well, that, that's absolutely true. And I think that's one of the interesting things about academic research trajectories, but really what everybody does. I mean, each person is really a unique and sometimes like almost random mm -hmm. combination of personal skills and qualities that people have for whatever their family background mm. or they just took French in school and like their teacher. And, you know, these things then become resources that people use later mm. in their careers. So I think the same goes for statistics mm. and computer literacy and other kinds of skills like getting along with people or, um, you know, just being interested in, you know, in nature or space or, you know, these things shape people's intellectual trajectories and their possibilities in life. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we can nurture these things and add them to our you know, skill sets of, of who we are and what we can do. But yes, for me, I mean, it was totally, when I started studying French in junior high, I don't know if I had ever even heard of Africa. <laughs> now I'd love to turn and talk about some of your recent work. Um, I was going through your publications, and you have so many of them, it was actually difficult to choose just one to talk about, so I decided to go with your most recent work. The paper from 2017 is called Sons of the Soil Conflict in Africa, Institutional Determinants of Ethnic Conflict Over Land. And what you point out in the paper that I think is fascinating and probably something not many people realize is that even though Africa is rapidly urbanizing and cities are growing, the majority of sub-Saharan Africa's population is rural, so they depend on agriculture for their livelihoods and income. But at the same time, what we're also seeing is slow technological innovation that would 
help increase agricultural production and as a result there's a lot more pressure on the land. So my question for you is what does this mean for rural communities and what effect is globalization having on adding even more pressure on the land? So that's a good question. Yes, in sub-Saharan African countries on average about 60% of the population is rural. And most of these people in the rural areas are involved in agricultural or pastoralism as livelihoods, although they may have some sources of income that are not linked to agriculture and pastoralism. So everything that affects rural livelihoods really affects population majorities in most African countries. And um, some of the very dramatic ways in which um, livelihoods and Yes, livelihoods have been shaped by globalization is through the liberalization of national markets for agricultural produce. So what that means is that maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, if you were a, a rice farmer or a maize farmer or a millet farmer in an African country, you could produce and you would sell part, let's say, let's say you consumed part mm -hmm. if you were a household farmer. But you would also be selling um, on markets for urban people and for other people who were food scarce. And then the money that you would earn from those sales would be a major contributor to your family's annual earned income. But what market liberalization does is to say, look, this country, instead of having restrictions on the kinds of food they can import, they need to throw open their, the gates of their country and whatever food is out there cheaply on the international market can flow freely into this country. So it's the kind of market liberalization that was imposed by the structural adjustment reforms, the neoliberal economic reforms that came to most African countries in the 1990s. So what that meant for, let's say, a rice farmer in Ghana or Senegal was that suddenly whatever rice they were selling on the domestic market would be in direct competition with whatever rice might float in from anywhere, from, from the United States, from Southeast Asia, or whatever. And often, as it turned out, these imported food staples undercut the prices of the domestically produced food staples. So suddenly, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of farmers find that their markets for their agricultural commodities are being ruined by foreign competition. And so many, many, many livelihoods were ruined in that way. And you know, the corrective to that is that governments need to somehow balance the need for imported food on domestic markets with kind of pricing policies that support livelihoods for rural producers. So governments need to have the ability to impose, let's say, taxes or other kinds of restrictions on imports in a judicious way in, that supports farming. So people are very, very directly affected by international policy trends and by the policy choices of their national governments, even though you might imagine, you know, an African farmer living way out in the rural areas far away from the reach of the state, is, that's really a false picture. They're very directly affected by the global market and by government policy. Okay, and how does that tie into conflict that takes place? Because um, from the paper, it sounds like, like what you're saying is that Intuitively, a lot of researchers would think that this increased pressure on land and migration from different parts of um, countries would increase conflict, but actually what it comes down to is differences in the type of institutions that uh, manage the land. Right, so this um, paper that you read on Sons of the Soil Conflict 
tries to extend the argument that I was making about markets and government policy mm -hmm. to the land tenure domain. And you know, some people, even you know, very well-informed social scientists, especially political scientists, might think that whatever land holding arrangements might exist out there in you know, the African countryside are somehow you know, completely separated from the modern state, that somehow these are just you know, very old you know, peasant populations going back hundreds of years, if not more, and that these people have just developed their own ways of managing the land and doesn't have anything to do with government. But in fact, what most of my work in the last 10 years or so has been about is to really try to explain the role of government in structuring land holding and the rules and laws and arrangements by which people gain access to land and hold land. Mm -hmm. And to say that even though it might be, you know, just a humble, ordinary farming family, you know, 500 miles away from the capital city out in, you know, an African village in Senegal or Ghana, wherever it is, the landholding rules that shape access and transfer of land are really very intimately and profoundly shaped by government. And so the Sons of the Soil paper looks at this phenomenon of rising population density in the rural areas and also migration of people from, you know, let's say south to north within their own country or across international borders to different, different farming areas but separated by an international border. And to really say with this rising demographic pressure, what happens to land access? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a false idea to expect that just because there are more people, suddenly they will all break out fighting. So, for example, I live in London. It's very crowded. There's a lot of people, but we're not like all constantly like, fighting with each other over food or space or even parking places or access to apartments. That's because in London, you know, there's rules that govern that. Although there can be crime at the margins or whatever, but there's rules and laws that govern that. So similarly in African countries, land access is governed by rules and laws. And so what I wanted to say in this paper is that in most places, there are actually very clear hierarchies of control around land. You know, so there are winners and losers to that, but there are very clear rules which governments enforce and back up, and rules that give priority to, as the title of the paper suggests, the so-called sons of the soil, or people mm -hmm. who are considered to be the indigenous or rightful residents of that community. So what I tried to do in the paper is just draw a contrast between these places and there are other places where different sorts of laws and political arrangements governing land pertain. In some areas, governments, in fact, don't recognize these hierarchies of people who are supposed to be indigenous, don't recognize the authority of sons of the soil, and in fact, governments give and take land more directly and more arbitrarily. And so what I wanted to say in this paper is that when you have a lot of political churning and political contestation and political instability, then this can translate into instability in the landholding arrangements on the ground. So if you owe your right to this farm to politician A, and that guy's about to lose power in an election, you might be like very concerned about the outcome of the election. You may, let's say the stakes are very high. It's not just casting your vote and somebody wins and loses, but if your candidate loses, you may be thrown off the land. And reciprocally, there may be candidate B who's promising that same land to his constituents. And so this is a kind of raising the stakes of election and causing you know, profound turbulence in land tenure arrangements that in certain parts of certain African countries can uh, cause very, very high levels of conflict at election time. So what I tried to do in the paper is to say this is not 
a generic phenomenon that you would just observe anywhere that is somehow natural to a natural outgrowth of conflictual tendencies mm -hmm. within African societies. This is a, a political effect caused by very particular kinds of political arrangements in which there's a lot of politically generated and politically instrumentally manipulated instability around land holding, driven by opportunism on, on the part of political elite. Thank you. That's a great summary. And we'll also have a link to the paper on the website for anybody who wants to learn more. Thank you so much for talking with me and it was great to have you on the show.